Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 8 to 15. Of course, we are really still in the introduction of this book. We had went over, of course, the first seven verses last week, talking about the gospel. Paul is introducing himself. He's already establishing from the very beginning of the gospel, his, his love for Christ. He's a bondservant. He's an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel, the good news of Christ. He establishes that the gospel was not something new, but it was established within the scriptures, that what we would understand as the Old Testament or the First Testament, as we talked about. Here in verses 8 to 15, again, he is continuing his introduction. And just as it is often with Paul, as he introduces himself, he begins to give thanks. He, he speaks to the people about his praying for them. And he is going to do that as well in our passage today. But have you ever heard the phrase, or people maybe have encouraged you as well, to look at the bigger picture? If you have such a narrow focus on something, they say, look at the bigger picture. Look at the overall understanding of this, or what have you. Uh, Of course, we've all heard that. Maybe folks have said it to us as well. It's an encouragement to really consider the overall scope of something, or the long-term scope of something, rather than uh, looking at specific details or having a narrow vision of whatever the matter is. Many churches only have a narrow vision of the work of Christ with reference to their own church. Uh, What I mean by that is that they are focused on starting programs or starting ministries or doing other things out in the community for their own church's sake and not consider what other ministries are already active and working. It has to have their name attached to it. It has to be known that this this church is performing this particular ministry or this particular service. Uh, we see that often. We see it a lot. Uh, churches <clears throat> that are brought up and they will only work within whatever their church is doing. There is a very competitive spirit among churches. Uh, we have to do this in order to make a name for our church. Or we have to do this in order that we can get people into our church. There is a a very competitive spirit there. It's only doing whatever serves the interest of our local congregation. But if we look at the bigger picture, what is the overall goal? What is it that we're working towards? What is it that the church is supposed to be doing? Now, granted, on Sunday mornings, on the Lord's Day, the church comes together. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We are here Uh, To honor Christ, that's why we gather. But as far as the mission of the church outside of the gathering, what, what is the goal? Well, we have the goal in Matthew 28, don't we? Go in all the nations and preach the gospel. Baptize them, teach them obedience. That's the goal of the church. That's that's the the marching orders of the church that Christ has given. Just as, just, just as a thought, what would it look like if the Bible-believing churches, <clears throat> I know that there are churches in order to guard against, uh, 
There are churches that you got to be very cautious about attaching, you know, your, yourselves to them, uh, especially if they have very heretical doctrine. But just think for a moment, if all the Bible-believing churches in Kingsport, for example, were to work together for the overall goal and mission of the church, what could be accomplished? Or any church, or any set of churches in any given city, what would it look like? Instead of making a, you know, glorifying Christ and having the, the believing uh, church, and I mean by that the believing church, not just one local church, but all the believing churches within a given city being known by their faith rather than one particular church trying to make a name above all else or all others. What would it look like if churches did that? Work together rather than trying to compete with one another. Well, we can't participate in this with you because we have to be doing stuff for our own church. We've got to start programs at our church. We've got to start ministries at our church. You know, there was one gentleman that came here uh, for a while, he and his family, and one thing that he had said often was, it's not about starting new programs or starting new ministries. It's about finding where God is working and go join them. That was great advice, because that's the way it should be. There's this narrow view that we only serve our interests. Many churches are that, are that way. And if we think, well, we don't really have a competitive spirit, we don't really, we don't really fall into that, we'll just consider these few things. Most everybody, mostly, has uh, social media, some form of social media. When you see that people are being converted at another church, do you say, praise God for that? Because Christ is growing his kingdom. Or do you look at that and say, well, they're probably not even getting the right teaching anyway. Or, yeah, it's probably one of them altar call things. Probably not even converted. Are we envious when other churches are doing things? When we see that this church has this particular ministry, maybe we don't have the resources to do that. And instead of saying, praise God for this particular ministry that this church is doing, because it's able to reach a number of people for the glory of Christ. Do we rejoice in that? Or do we say, eh, we need to start our own thing. We'll do it right. Do we, are we thankful of God moving regardless if it's in our church or in others? Are we thankful that God is converting hearts? Are we thankful that Christ's kingdom is growing with every new convert, Christ's kingdom is growing. Would we be willing to lock arms with other believers to glorify Christ and make his name great, regardless if the church's name is there or not? Even if the particular ministry did not begin from this church. Because in this passage that we're going over today, we read of the Apostle Paul, who arguably 
considered by many to probably be the greatest of the apostles, the greatest evangelist of the apostles, who is thanking God for a church that he didn't start, a church that he didn't found, a church that is flourishing, not by his doing, but a church that is flourishing in the heart of pagan Rome. The word is, is out about these particular believers that are there. And as Paul is writing this epistle to them, he doesn't write to them to take control of anything or try to establish his authority over them as an apostle. You know, and you think about this, this whole scenario here. The apostle Paul, as well as the other disciples, the other, the other apostles, have started the church in Jerusalem, it went into Judea, it went into Samaria, it's going into the other parts of the world, and perhaps Paul's goal was, what if at one day we could get to the heart of, of, of the empire, which is Rome, one day we could get there, and then he gets word that it's already happened, Paul, and you didn't do it. God was already doing it. And instead of saying, ooh, well, this is, this is the heart of the empire. That's where I need to go, and that's, I need to take over the church, and I need to, to help these people along. He doesn't do that. Instead, he writes to them, he's saying, I thank God for you. He writes to them with great affection, a people that he doesn't even know. I thank God for you, and I pray for you, and I pray for you unceasingly. Always making mention of you in my prayers. He desires to get there to them. He desires to visit with them, to fellowship with them, to build them up. And even as Paul is an apostle, he doesn't say, I'm coming there to build you up because I'm an apostle. Instead, he's writing in this letter and he's saying, I'm coming there to build you up and you to encourage me. He's coming together to join with them, together for the sake of Christ. So what is the overall goal? To glorify Christ, make his name great among the nations. And this text is really a call for believers to remember this. As one theologian said, we keep the main thing the main thing. God adds to his church as he sees fit. But he calls his people to be faithful and rejoice in his works, regardless of how big or how small. So there is a lot of encouragement to receive within this passage, and I pray that it would indeed encourage us. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 8, reading down to verse 15. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that the Spirit of God would apply this passage to our hearts, cultivating in us an even greater desire, Father, to to seek to make your name great above all else, to magnify Christ above ourselves. Father, we pray that you would bless your word, bless the preaching of your word, and that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within us. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So there is much here in this passage, great encouragement to receive here. Paul has already established the gospel. He's established the gospel within the Old Testament. These are nothing new. These truths are nothing new. They were foretold in, in the First Testament. They have come to fruition as Christ has come on the scene. Christ has accomplished all that the, the, the Old Testament had foreshadowed. We have received this grace to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. It's all about him. You are the called of Christ. You are the saints in Christ, the holy ones, as a result of his redemptive work. So he establishes their identity now in Christ. They are the saints of God. They are the holy ones. They are called of God. They are those who have received the same kind of faith as ours, as he says elsewhere. And in reference to this congregation, again, that he's never met, one of the first things he does is he thanks God for them. Now, his purpose in writing, of course, is is that their faith is being known throughout the whole world. This is his first reason of giving thanks. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's like, how, how is their faith being known? What were they doing? Well, again, if you think about this, this isn't something to just pass over. Paul has been going to various places within Israel, preaching the gospel. He's moved out of Israel. He's going to other places. But these are places that, that you know, Jewish synagogues are already in existence. And so he can go there. He can preach the gospel, use the Old Testament scriptures, all of that. But here you have the, the capital of the empire where all of it where Caesar is, all of this, in the heart of pagan Rome. Again, you have a church that has been established there. And most likely, as we talked about before, it could have very well been that in in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when you have Peter preaching and 15 different nations are there, that many of them probably were from Rome. And so as they were converted, over 3,000 converted that day, they take the gospel back to Rome. That could have been uh, exactly how the church was, was uh, begun there. This is a church that is flourishing in the heart of all the idolatry that goes on there. 
And so if you have that kind of a church that is there and you have so many that are traveling to Rome, because obviously Rome, uh, Rome being the capital city, you're going to have a lot of people traveling there and coming back into Israel, etc. Did you hear about this church that is actually flourishing in Rome? The heart of the empire has, has the gospel there. There's a church that is flourishing. People are being converted. That's something to, to talk about. Wow. The church is flourishing there? What are they doing? They're just being faithful. They're being faithful unto the Lord. They're preaching the gospel. People are being converted. They're doing nothing out of the ordinary. But being faithful. But God has established this church in the heart of all the idolatry, all the idolatrous practices that go there. And this will be a very uh, great encouragement to Paul as well. This is why he is thanking God. He's not saying, I thank whoever it is that took the gospel to you. He's saying, I'm, I'm thanking God for you. Because while Paul is out here laboring, trying to sh- uh, share the gospel in this city and that city, going to these various places, and eventually he wants to make it to Rome, God's already worked there. God's already established this church there. God is showing his power and his might that even in the heart of Rome, I'm establishing my people. For the darkness cannot cloud out the light. It cannot hinder the light. I know that we don't all agree when it comes to eschatology. But to look at this passage and to understand what is happening there of how the gospel has gone forth into the heart of the empire and has penetrated into the empire and nothing can hinder the gospel from going there and people being converted to me. I look at Revelation 20 and I see the binding of Satan that occurred at the first coming of Christ. And his binding is in reference to deceiving the nations. He's bound in the sense that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. What does that mean? It means he cannot stop the progress of the gospel. Not even in Rome. The other writers of scripture describing Satan, he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Dr. Joel Beakey had talked about Satan being like a dog on a leash. He can only go so far, and he can bark at you. If you get too close, he can bite you. But otherwise, he's on the chain that is held by his master, and he can only do so much. But he cannot hinder the will of his master. And Christ has all authority in heaven and in earth, and he says, go forth to all the nations and you see it even in the first century, within 20, 30 years of Christ ascending into heaven, the gospel's in Rome. And this is God who has done this. This is God's work. This is God showing his sovereignty and his control. And so Paul says, I thank my God because he's the one doing it. He's the one that we, we give thanks to and praise to for you. He established you in that place. And the knowledge of this has gone forth in all the world. People are thinking to themselves, 
How difficult it was for the gospel to start here. Surely it was impossible in Rome, but it's not. There's a church there already. That's going to be in great encouragement to all the churches. God is at work. Christ is sovereign. He's the king even over, even over Rome. So I thank my God for you. For your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, he says. For God whom I serve in my spirit and the humbleness of the spirit. How, how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. He continually prays for this church. This church that God has established, you have the believers that are there, the people are being converted. He prays for them. A church, again, that he's never met. A church that he's, he, he's not started. But because they are the brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have that kind of a unity among others who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul prays for them. Perhaps he prays for them that the Lord will continue to nurture their faith. That they may continue to be steadfast, immovable in the work of the Lord. Especially being where they were. You know, it's, it's one thing, especially when, when you have um, you know, folks that, like us, we support uh, the Masters Academy International. We support those who are in, you know, uh, another country for their education, being able to be trained and then pass through their churches. And, you know, it, it's easy to, to be mission-minded in that sense. Yeah, we'll give to that and we'll pray for them. We'll pray for, for those that are there in these other countries. And, but, but we don't often say, I'm going to pray for this church down the street. I'll pray for them, and I'll support them, because they're not in my area, so don't have to compete with them. But am I going to pray for the Bible-believing churches that are here? Am I going to thank God for them? Am I going to pray that the Lord continue to nurture their faith, faith that, that they would be immovable? In the work of the Lord. I would say we don't often do that. But the question is, is why don't we do that? Even, even let, let me just throw this out here. Within Kingsport, you have all kinds of varieties of churches. You have very Bible-believing churches. And then you do have some very heretical churches. Even for the heretical churches, should we be praying, O oh Lord, convert their hearts to the truth of the gospel? See, we have this idea, and maybe it's because we're Americans, I don't know, that you, you hear that so often, I'm looking out for number one or something along that line. That's not how the church is supposed to function. That's not how the local church is supposed to function. You don't look out for number one, even us individually here at this church. We look out for each other. That's how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to show that kind of a love and encouragement to one another, that kind of accountability to one another, that we're not just looking out for our own interests, but the interests of others. But we stop 
doing that very thing once, once we hit the door. We're not concerned about the other believing, uh, believing churches that, that are in our area. We, just, we don't give it much thought. And there, there could be a few reasons for that. One is we are Reformed Baptist. Probably a number of the other churches who are not Reformed Baptist would have probably more difficult time locking arms with us than we would with them. Because you say Reformed or Calvinist, and you know they're, they're definitely not Catholic, but I'm sure they'd hold up some kind of a crucifix towards us. We'll give in this one time. That's the sad part of it. But maybe, maybe that could be some of the reasoning, too. But in any event, that doesn't stop us from praying for them. It doesn't stop us from praying that God would work mightily within their church and the resources that perhaps that they have to reach others. So Paul is praying for this church. And no doubt as he prays in, in, uh, or as his prayers are recorded in other, other epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians have very similar, uh, similar phrases or statements by Paul as far as his, praying, his prayers for them. Like in Ephesians chapter 1, for example, verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what the hope of his call, so that you will know the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. When you get to Philippians, and this I pray, this is Philippians 1, 9, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with all, fruit of, all the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians has a very similar prayer. So as Paul is praying for this church, what is he praying for? Probably the very same things that he's praying for all churches. That you would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the, the, his power and his might. That you would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, bearing fruit. That's a good lesson of how we ought to be praying for other churches. So he gives thanks for them. He's praying for them. And he longs to see them. He has great affection for this church. How is that? He says, for I long to see you. He's never met him. How does he have that kind of affection? Because those who are born of God love the brethren. That's what John says. Those who are born of God love, love those who have also been born of God. Why? How, how, can, how can that be? Because the Lord has, has cultivated in us a great desire not only for him, but for all whom he saves. Because we all have that recognition of where have we been brought from. The grace that has been extended to us in Christ and the, the fellowship that we now have with him and the unity that we all have in the spirit of God. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? So there's a unity there. There's a closer bond among believers, probably more so than, than family Family members. And so when it comes to other believers, I mean, think of, think of this. 
When we talk about other believers and that are going through such persecution in, in China or other places, our hearts go out to them. And, and we pray for them and, and we ask the Lord to, to, to keep them safe or to allow the church to flourish there. We look at others within history who had given their lives. And it's hard to even read the account of some of these without, without getting very emotional thinking, look at their commitment to Christ, look what God has done through them. How do we have that kind of affection? We're reading of people we don't even know. Or we're hearing of people that we don't even know. And yet our hearts are yearning for them. That's because the Spirit of God is doing a mighty work within us. Bringing us together in that recognition of these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are all the family of God. You're talking about the universal church here. We forget that we're part of the universal church. The universal church made up of all believers at all times in history, all over the world. We forget. Why? Because we have that narrow view. That narrow focus just on what we can do. Paul longs to see these folks. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. His desire is to strengthen them. He gives thanks for them. His desire is to strengthen this church. He may impart some spiritual gift. The the idea of imparting a spiritual gift is not speaking of imparting some kind of a a spiritual gift in the sense of, of, of the power of the spirit to them. Of what we would recognize as, you know, the laying on of hands, the healing, or the, the speaking in tongues, and, you know, the various charismatic um, gifts that we find within Scripture. And charis that, that is a biblical word, by the way, not the way that they use it. Um, but that kind of a spiritual gift is not what's in view here. But rather, it's really the spiritual strengthening in general is what he's referring to. Longs to impart some spiritual gift to them, that spiritual strengthening to them. You guys are, in, you're, you guys are on the front lines. You're, you're right here. So how can Paul encourage them? Because he desires to edify them, not take them over because they're thriving in Rome, but to strengthen their faith. Because Paul's labor has been the same as theirs. He's been out preaching the gospel. He's been enduring all the hardships that we read of in in the Corinthian epistles. And he recognizes that this church over here, this church piercing into the darkness has got some very difficult situations going on there too. And so how may I come alongside you and help you? Paul has much to say that he could strengthen this church. And we know that he has much to say that can strengthen and encourage the church because as we read through Romans or as we read through his epistles, what happens to us? We are built up by what Paul is saying. Our faith is is growing as we're reading of all the the teachings that Paul is bringing out that is in uh, connection with the Old Testament. He brings it all to light. He really gives us much of the implications of all that we read of in the Gospels and what Christ has accomplished. And now the implication of that is Romans, Ephesians. And it builds our faith. 
It grows us. It matures us in Christ. So Paul has much to say that can strengthen their faith. And that's what what his desire is to do. He has much to say about suffering and, and the sovereignty of God. He desires not only to strengthen them, he says, but that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. John Calvin, he writes this in in reference to that passage. This is how Calvin puts it. He says, my faith, as well as yours, is in need of strengthening. You will be a blessing to me. I to you. You see, you see a lot of humility here in Paul. Again, as an apostle of Christ, having the authority that he does, he's not seeking any of that. He's seeking to build them up and to be built up by them. There should never be a time in which we think that we've come so far or that we are so far along that we can't be encouraged by someone else. I was reading one theologian who was having a very rough week. His day was not going well. And he could, his, his children could see it, that he was having a rough day. And so one of his kids come up to him and said, Daddy, be of good cheer. Jesus loves you. And the kid was four years old. But that's what he needed. And he was encouraged by that. We are never so far advanced that we should think to ourselves that we don't need to be encouraged. Because we all do. I need to be encouraged. He needs to be encouraged. We encourage each other uh, by praying for one another, by, by, giving, by giving a word of encouragement. Jesus loves you. This too will pass. God is always with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Whatever the situation calls for, we can encourage one another because we all need it. And even the apostle needed it. You see that in Ephesians 2. He asked the Ephesians to pray for him that he would be bold in his proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because Paul's just a man. That's it. He's a man. Well, he had all that spiritual gifts and he had all this power. But none of that meant that it was was able to sustain him in his times of trouble and in the difficulties. Well, I got this power here, so I should be encouraged. No, I need to hear truth from God. I need to hear the word of God and and the reality of the gospel uh, spoken back to me. So he is asking this church, this young church, for, for their encouragement towards him. Here's a great theologian. He's an apostle. He's a scholar. But he desires to be strengthened by this church. Not only can he be strengthened by this church by, by you know, knowing that they're, they're there and knowing that God is working there. That would have been a great encouragement to him. Surely I've not done all this in vain and I'm trying to go here and people are trying to stone me. They're doing all kinds of stuff. But, but I am encouraged because 
God has established this church there. And then when he gets there, how can he be encouraged? Well, this is what happened. Perhaps we were there on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches the sermon. We were converted to Christ, and then we came back to Rome. We went into the synagogue, and we began to to teach from the first testament of all that that God had brought about in Christ concerning the things that were written before. And people were were converted. And as Paul is hearing the testimony of the people, oh, he's working here too. This is going to strengthen me because I'm going to go right back out and I'm going to continue to do the work of the Lord. Look at what he does. This is a a great reminder to Paul that his labor is not in vain. For even in places that he's never been, God is converting people even in, in the heart of the empire. Maybe... Maybe that they would be praying for him, of course. That in itself is a great encouragement knowing that people are praying for you. Is it an encouragement to you? Do you know that? You see this on social media, and it's by obviously unbelievers. But something terrible happens or someone passes away, and you have people that say, you know, I'm praying for you. Or... Some, some other terrible situation has occurred and you have someone who has a platform that people listen to and they say, you know, we're praying for all the people that were affected by this. And then you have others that comment and say, prayer ain't going to do anything. You need to say something. Do something. Act. And so they dismiss prayer very quickly, thinking that there's something better. Prayer, as we've been over before, prayer is vital to the Christian faith. As John Piper said, prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie. This is our communion with God. We are bringing our, our burdens to the Lord. And who invites us to bring our burdens to him? He says, cast all your burdens upon him for he cares for you. And we're praying to the one who alone can do Anything that he desires to do. So if we want things done, we don't say, this isn't going to work. i got to go do something else. No, we come to you and we say, oh Lord, nothing is impossible with you. Anything that you determine to do, you can do it. You do all that you please in heaven and on earth. And we pray if it is your will that you would intervene in this situation here. You're praying to the one who controls it all. So does prayer accomplish things? They absolutely accomplish things. Knowing the people are praying for you is a great encouragement. And dear church, you have people that are always praying for you. I hope you know that. Often we, we like to share that with each other. Will you pray for me in this and pray for me in that? And, and it's good to, to, let, to let situations be known. This is a specific situation that is going on. And I'd like you to pray for that. But don't think for a moment that prayers are not being offered up to the Lord on your behalf. You don't have to ask for it because it's always occurring. I pray that you know that. So Paul wants to be encouraged by them as he hears of their faith, as he hears of their testimony, as he hears how the Lord is working. But not only that... 
he's going to join, he wants to join in with them. But you really have here perhaps his motivation in doing so. What keeps him going? What is it that, that, that he is motivated by? He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. That could have been perhaps when uh, Caesar Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome in AD 49. And after his death, they were able to start coming back about the time that he was penning this letter. That could have been what prevented him. But so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's, he says, I am, this is what it means, I am a debtor. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. What does that mean? What is he getting at? You know, we sing the song, or uh, come thou found, and in the, in the song it says, O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Paul was a debtor to the grace of God. Because of the grace that was extended to him, even though he was a persecutor of the church, he was arresting believers, he was consenting to their deaths, all of that, and yet God had mercy on him, converted his heart, set him apart for the gospel. He doesn't forget this. Knowing what grace has been granted to him through the one whom he was persecuting beforehand, he is continually motivated to to work and to labor and to do for the one who saved him. And so that's the kind of language he uses. I am a debtor. I am under obligation. You know, we talk about Paul's thorn in the flesh and there's a variety of Thoughts as to what, what exactly was this thorn in the flesh. Some say that perhaps it was his eyesight, uh, as he writes in Galatians. See how big letters that I'm using, all of that. Or his thorn in the flesh could have been remembering that he once persecuted the church of God. There are times in which, of course, for whatever things that we've done in our past still seem to haunt us at times and we still feel the sorrow and maybe that was the very thing that the Lord had used in order to to keep moving Paul along he says I prayed three times for the Lord to take him what does he say my grace is sufficient my grace is sufficient Paul to cover that Christ paid the debt for that Perhaps that was his thorn in the flesh, but that's what motivated him to continue to labor for the Lord. That he did not forget the grace that was extended to him. He didn't forget the mercy that he received. He didn't forget now that he is the object of God's love when once he was his enemy. He didn't forget that. And so what is his desire then? My desire is to get there and to bear fruit with you. To obtain some fruit, to make some converts with you, to lock arms with you in what you're doing, and to labor for the cause of the Christ. Because I'm a debtor to all of them. It doesn't matter who it is. I don't have one particular group in mind that I'm only going to be 
focusing on. You know, when we were getting ready to start our church, I met with this other local pastor, and he says, so what's your vision for the church? I said, my vision? What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, who are you, who you trying to reach? You know, what, what's the demographic you're going after? And I said, everybody. Do, do we have to have a like an age group here? We're only going to focus on these? What, what does that even mean? But that's, that's kind of like the new thing. What's your vision for the church? Well, my vision is to do whatever the scripture tells me to do. So it's not too hard. But what, what demographic are you going after? Whoever will listen. And that's, that's, Paul's, that's Paul's view. He's under obligation both to Greeks, those who are learned, perhaps those who are being able to read his epistle in the Koine Greek that it was written in, who are maybe even the Hellenistic Jews. Anybody that has learned, I'm an obligation to them. And for anybody who didn't speak Greek, who did not adopt the Greek culture, who were regarded as barbarians, I'm obligated to them too. I'm obligated to the wise. I'm obligated to the foolish. I'm just eager to preach the gospel is what he's saying. You know, one man that comes to mind is Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian. Jonathan Edwards, as I think it was R.C. Sproul said, who was America's greatest theologian, probably America's greatest philosopher, who penned probably the greatest work on American soil, which was his work, The Freedom of the Will. As, as, as much as this man was learned in the scriptures, a scholar, a Puritan, he ended up getting kicked out of his church, and he went to preach the gospel among the American Indians. Those who had no idea of any of this. So he goes from teaching uh, advanced, mature Christians and all of this, all of these deep theological truths and all of this that we, that we read of and that we, we delight in. And he goes to preach the gospel to people who've never heard of any of this on a level that they can understand in order to begin to bring them along. And, of course, he died at a very young age. We're under obligation. We should view ourselves to be under obligation to all. Whoever. Not particular not not a particular group or one demographic. And why should we be? Dear Christian, do you forget? Do you forget the grace that was extended to you? Do you forget that one, at one time you were an enemy of God? Do you forget that as Paul will tell us in the weeks to come that the wrath of God was abiding on you while you were in your sin? Well, what if I'm one of the elect? Does that mean then that you were never under the wrath of God? No. And actually, theologians will say very clearly, yes, the wrath of God was abiding on you until God's appointed time in which he converted you. You could do nothing to please God. You couldn't even submit yourself to the law of God. You were a rebel. You were an enemy of God. And so, yes, 
God was angry with you every day of your life until the day that he converted your heart. Do you forget that? You've received such grace, such love, that remembering what God has brought us from, remembering that we were once under his, his wrath and angry with us every day, that we deserved to have the eternal wrath of God upon us, and yet he delivered us from that out of a pure act of grace. How then could we not say, I'm under obligation to do whatever God wants me to do? I'll do a little bit. I'll go on with my life. I'll do a little bit. I'll do... Why don't we, we ever come to the point of saying, you know what? I want to know where God's working. I want to go join him. Because I'm a debtor to whoever they're ministering to. It doesn't matter. I'm a debtor to the Lord. It regardless of what people it is. Because God has saved me and I want, I want him to save them if it's his will. I want to be used by him. I want to be an instrument in his hand in order to bring others into the kingdom. I want to please him. I want to obtain some fruit, as, as the Apostle Paul says. He was, he was eager to join in with them. A people that he didn't know, but a people he had great affection for. A church that he didn't start, but a church that he thanks God for. To lock arms with them. This is where God's working, and that's where I'm going. To encourage them to continue on. To preach to whoever. And not only to preach to the Greeks and the barbarians and the wise and the foolish, but also to preach the gospel to them. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Does that seem a little odd? In one way, it really shouldn't. How often do we continually emphasize the atonement of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ, Sunday after Sunday. Every Lord's Day we take of the bread and the cup, which is a visible sermon of what Christ has accomplished. And so we are continually reminded every time that we come together of the gospel of Christ, the good news of what he has accomplished on behalf of sinners. And so Paul, in doing the very same things that we do every Sunday, being reminded of it. Paul is eager to get to Rome and to preach the gospel to them. Because it's the gospel that has brought them all together. It's the gospel that is the instrument in which God penetrates into the darkness and begins to convert the hearts of people. No other testimony, no other information, nothing. There's no other content that will convert a sinner's heart apart from the gospel. It's the gospel alone. We can, we can even make really good arguments. You know, and apologetics is good, and apologetics is needed. And often apologetics leads us into being able to declare the gospel, but apologetics by itself and just establishing these truths will not convert anyone. Ever. You know what apologetics is good for? And I believe it was Calvin who had talked about it. Apologetics is good just to silence the people. A 
a great defense of the faith doesn't, doesn't bring sinners into sainthood. It's the gospel. The good news of Christ. The God-man who lived the perfect life, who died the death we deserve, satisfying the justice of God, who rose again triumphantly over death, showing his power and his authority over death, and in doing so gives all who are in him the promise that they too will be resurrected on the last day for all who behold the Son. It's the gospel that brings us all together. And the gospel, remember from last week, what is the gospel? It's, it's all the, the, the content of it all is Christ. Who he is. What he did. That's the instrument that God uses to bring people to faith. And Paul says, that's for us too. And I'm eager to get there. And I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Because that's where the source of life has come from. Hearing the gospel and the spirit of God changing our hearts as a result of, of what Christ has done. So in looking at this passage, just some things to consider. Only you can answer these questions, of course. I mean, but do you pray for the success of the gospel in places that you've never been or with churches that perhaps you know are Bible-believing, but you don't know anybody there? Do you pray for the success of the gospel in whatever ministries that are there? And do you give thanks to the Lord for how he works in the lives of others, in other churches, in other cities? Do you give thanks to God? Because here's the thing. We confess that we are not waiting, obviously, for Christ to become king. He's already king. His coronation happened at his ascension. He's seated on his throne, and he is ruling and reigning. We talk about the kingdom of God being a present reality. That is, Daniel talks about it's, it's a stone that's cut out of the mountain, not made with hands, and it's cast at the statue, and it grows into a great mountain consuming the earth. We confess these truths that the kingdom of Christ is the greatest of all the kingdoms in existence because it spans the globe. We make these confessions. Yes, we believe that. Christ is king. His kingdom's all over the world. And his kingdom is growing. But we're okay with saying... Thank you, Lord, that the kingdom is growing in these other places, these other foreign countries. But do we, do we say, thank, thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is growing in this town here because I heard that there were others that were converted from the, at the church down the street? Because we should be. We can't keep a narrow view of whatever's going on here or trying to start things here. But we need to find where God is working and go join him. And we need to thank God for every time a soul is converted because every time a soul is converted, his kingdom is growing. I don't like, I will say this, this is probably more of a, probably more of a pet peeve, I guess. And if you've said it, I'm sorry. I'll give a preemptive. <laughs> um, 
when you see that stuff on social media, we had so many converted, God is still working. Like, did you need that to, to know that he was working? Do you think he's not working? Of course he's working. Why do we say that? I don't know why we say that. I don't, I don't say it. I hope you don't. <laughs> because he is working. God is still in the saving business. You know, my dad used to have this little funny little quip that he would tell people. And, of course, you've heard it, too. They would say something, and he would be like, duh, the big red truck. <laughs> you know, and you just want to write on there, duh. <laughs> of course he's in the saving business. Do you think that Satan has such a hold that, he, that God cannot do whatever he pleases? Of course he can't. Why? Because all authority is given to him in heaven and in earth. He has it all. It's all his. And again, when you look at the binding of Satan, you first read of it in Matthew 12, when Jesus is casting out demons, and they begin to accuse him. You're casting out demons by the power of Satan. You're in league with Satan. Of course you're casting them out. They're working with you. And he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how else can one enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his goods? So when you look at the the first coming of Christ and all that he accomplished, he has bound Satan because he's casting out demons and Satan cannot hinder anything that he's doing. When the 70 come back and they have good results from their evangelistic efforts, what does Jesus say? I saw Satan falling like a star from heaven. He's being cast down. And in John chapter 12, what does Jesus say? Now the time has come for the ruler of this world to be cast down. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus rendered him powerless, him who had the power of death. John says in 1 John chapter 3 that for this reason did the Son of God come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. These things happen at Christ's first coming. And so we never should say, God, are you still working? Is Satan able to hinder anything that you're doing? No. God does all that he pleases in heaven and on earth, and none can thwart his hand or say to him, what have you done, as Nebuchadnezzar had to figure out. Of course God is still in the saving business. Of course God is still working. And so whatever fear that keeps us from joining in because we're, we're afraid that maybe nothing will be done, maybe the labor that we try to do is in vain or we will receive some kind of a backlash for it, we remember this, I am a debtor to him because of all that he did. This is a small, momentary light affliction. Even if I experience anything in comparison to what Christ has done and in comparison to what awaits for those that love God, God, give me what the, the, the strength and the boldness that I need in order to accomplish this because I want to demonstrate to you my love for you, my appreciation, my gratefulness, my thanks for all that you have done for me. So then, what do we do? We pray for the success of the gospel among all Bible-believing churches. We pray for the conversion of those who are held into the heretical churches. We see where God's working, and we go join them. What's the main thing? 
Preach the gospel. Baptize. Teach the nation's obedience. That's what we need to be about. Because that's what the Apostle Paul was about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once more for your word. For all, Father, that, that you have done in our lives thus far. You've brought us from death to life. You breathed in us the breath of life. Made us alive in Christ by your grace. I pray, Father, for all of us here that that, uh, we, we would never take those truths for granted, but that we would remember. Remember at one time we were enemies, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father, let us be about the main thing, which is Christ. Let us rejoice in all the work that you do, regardless of where it is. Let us be grateful that your kingdom is growing. Let us see opportunities in which we can, in, we can encourage others, that we can edify others, that we can join in with others in order to accomplish whatever you have for us to do. Use us as your instruments to bring others into the kingdom. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are, we are now in the family of God and that we are united with all believers everywhere. For those believers that are still here, for those believers that are in heaven with you, thank you that we've been made part of that church. Father, we love you. We give you all the praise and the honor for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.